everyone, and welcome back to what is now Season 4 of the Foodie Dashi Podcast. We are in our fourth year, and fourth year Lauren is here along beside me. Hello, I am here along beside you. Along another, beside me? Along beside you. <laughs> yep. I am elongated, actually. I am laying on my desk and recording upside down with my feet in the air. Yeah. So in season four of the Foodie Dashi podcast, we have decided that, you know, while in the past we often talk about game design issues like more broadly or from a, you know, a theoretical perspective in a kind of like top downish way, we have not, in fact, actually spent a lot of time talking about design from the ground up. So the thing that we're going to do this year, and, you know, maybe occasionally we'll deviate from it, but sort of the primary theme of this season is going to be following along with me and Lauren, because Lauren is there too, (laughs) as I make a game entirely from scratch. And so along the way, we're going to address various issues that arise. I'm going to try and be pretty open about, you know, the various mistakes that I make, how I address them, why it's fine to make mistakes. Like bugs are an aspect of game design, dealing with bugs, learning how to like turn bugs into features, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) Like these are all, these are all fundamental aspects of game design that don't really necessarily always fit into those like broader theoretical conversations. While at the same time, we are still going to be very like theory oriented and sort of help. Sometimes it may not be obvious, like how the mundane sort of gets translated from those like broader theoretical perspectives. But I think that's one of the things that we have to offer. And so that's what we're going to get into this year. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so for everyone who knows that I'm currently being employed in the games industry right now, this is kind of the start of seasons for uh, Lauren's legal disclaimer that in no way, shape or form am I (laughs) contributing to this game during work hours, nor will I be profiting from any of Nicholas's uh, amazing kind of intrepid designs into the game development universe. Um, so thank you for everybody listening to that legal disclaimer here on the <laughs> podcast. Um, I have to be very explicit because I want to yeah. make sure that everybody recognizes that like I love to work and usually I work on the weekends, right? I work outside of work hours, but yeah. also that um, in any way when you're the first life lesson you'll get in game development, at least when you are publicly employed is that i don't know why i said publicly employed yeah I you're am, not like working for the government doing i anything. am not working for the government <laughs> like wow big brother my well i mean it is a bit anyway when you're working for well i would legal, explain why you have an nda you have that like military contractor job <laughs> i do I, I mean i do got that nda uh anyway what i will say is when you are employed in games right like something that's really really important is figuring out I guess the first step if you're going to make a game for a really big company, right, is figuring out uh, what you can and actually can't do and what you do and do not own. 
yeah. uh, coming as an as an indie kind of like published developer and also as a like person who actually like ran a company for a little bit. I actually was I was a part of an LLC while I was employed in AAA, which is always really interesting because they're not used to that. But yeah. basically, like everything fits into the form, which is Section 13A, which is what are your pre-existing established IPs, whether or not they have or have not been published. So that means in the public domain. I think that's why I said public, because I was like thinking about how my work is very like technically private and it's yeah. very much contractual, even as a full-time salary employee. Versus technically anything that I use on my website portfolio or anything that I could publish on itch, right, would technically be considered public domain, but is my Lauren Ash creative property. Yeah. And so basically that actually even extends into things like Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. If you are a public personality on Instagram, say everyone, and you don't actually put that your Instagram is your own personal property, and if you put any creativity there on this forum at a, at a company institution and you get in trouble, the company could say that you have damaged their image. And so yeah. this is like a really, sorry, this is a very like deep and kind of dark <laughs> twisted way into games for the first season for one episode. Um, but this is really important just to kind of explain why I'm doing this funny legal disclaimer in the beginning. Yeah. And also like is the first step right on your journey if you do want to make games that's in a triple A space. But thankfully here for the rest of this season, we're actually going to be stepping that aside. It will not be talking about any of that, which is really exciting. And instead, we'll be focusing on making a game as if it was completely your own intellectual property, original IP super exciting and while i might be giving some of my like the thoughts and opinions on here it really will be nicholas right doing all of that kind of hard exciting work uh yeah as, as, per, as per usual i do all the actual work yep, yep that's out, that's out. <laughs> and that is just a joke for those of you who are like you know they were not furiously typing away nicholas is so sexist no i was just i was kidding <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> wrapping right. up that intro, okay. Nicholas, take us away on episode one with those uh, gotta start somewhere. Yeah, so like that's actually, and interestingly enough, the like where to start is itself kind of an issue because I was thinking to myself, like possibly it would be best to start off, you know, since you were talking about, like, you know, the problems of IP, you know, ownership, quote unquote, ownership of your ideas. Um, I actually don't want to begin from the ideas perspective um for a whole host of reasons the primary one being that like if we're going to look at this from like the nuts and bolts perspective the one of the first major decisions you have to make when you're going to be working on a game is like what is fundamentally going to be the medium of your game cuz like prior to making this particular game that I'm working on in Renpy um I also made a tabletop game a card based tabletop game which is pretty good if i do say so myself <laughs> um but that's the sort of the medium in which i was working and then like with that choice with the the choice of like okay i'm going to make a tabletop game that is card based but also involves random number generators in the forms of dice and it's also going to in like involve a counter system by making all of those decisions like it does kind of constrain a lot of the ways in which you then approach like how you build up your mechanics and so then from the perspective of making a video game, one of the first fundamental choices you have to make is like, okay, well, one, am I going to use a game engine at all? You could be a complete psycho and like literally hard code every single thing in your game. I don't recommend this. 
I I am so happy you're actually thinking about <laughs> I you say this, but I'm actually really happy you're talking about the game engine problem because in AAA or just in the industry in general right now, Unreal is so um, ubiquitous and so is Unity. Yeah. And after the Unity kind of... Oh, just, yeah. Yeah, we never talked about the Unity meltdown, did we? Well, we never <laughs> did, but just really quick... <laughs> okay, really go ahead. Quick, go ahead. No, really quick 60 seconds here. It's just that the Unity meltdown actually forced everybody to reevaluate their medium or the yeah. like tool that they're going to be using to talk about or that they're going to be using to you know develop their games and it's something that's funny to me because even in AAA, where we're all kind of switching over to unreal engine now i say we all and it's just largely unreal engine is one of the major um kind of AAA industry st standards whereas like unity is also now being reevaluated even within double a AA and triple a like those types yeah. of gamings yeah. uh platforms or uh whatever's but um AAA developers even as far as like those have been around giants right are going to go, wait, let's just make our own game engine. And they're going to remake their own engines for yeah. a new title. But as a solo developer, like you're not going to make your own engine. Yeah, I'm not making a proprietary engine for this game. Sorry, folks. Like I'm actually pretty decent in Python, but the sheer amount of work that it would take to like build in, like a game engine up from the ground, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing that because I value my life. And my time. <laughs> and I value your life and your time too. But so that's kind of where you started. You were like, what engine am I going to use? And so yeah. how did you use, how did you make that change it? Like, uh, how did you answer that question for yourself? Yeah. So I, I'll talk a little bit about sort of like the history of how I came to make this decision. So, okay. In terms of like, you know, filling out my own personal portfolio, one of the things, and this was through discussion with Lauren, one of the things that I realized is that it would be good to have a portfolio example that like is working specifically in engine on a project. And originally I was going to do something in unreal and it was just going to be sort of a spec thing. It wasn't going to be a complete game. It was just going to, like, I was going to build, I was going to design and build the system in unreal engine. Just use like the basic assets that unreal provides you like, you know, the little like robot avatar and so forth. And that was going to be that. But then, um, I didn't do that, <laughs> but like in the process of then sort of like coming up with like, you know, sort of like collecting the assets that I was going to use and sort of like paper prototyping things, which and like, I know Lauren, you like to do that as well. I also like to paper prototype things. Um, I realized like, I know I have an idea for like an actual story that I want to tell. And on top of that, I also have this sort of at the time a still vague idea of how to build up a sort of like encounter system that could be used for both combat and for non-combat encounters in exactly the same way. And, you know, at the time I was playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3, which is an extremely good game. Uh, but you can see similar things in games like, you know, the Fallout series. Like, you know, you see this a lot in Bethesda games. You see it a lot in Bioware games where like there would be a sort of this bifurcated system where combat will work one way and then skill checks will work in a completely different way, often usually using like a dialogue based system. So what I wanted to do is I actually wanted to merge those two. I wanted all encounters to use the same basic system. And that was when I realized I'm like, okay, I don't 
this isn't an Unreal project anymore. One, because if I'm actually going to build a system, I'm going to have to be coding it myself. And the only program la programming language that I'm really comfortable in is Python. Um, I suppose as part of the process, I could like learn C++ alongside, you know, working in Unreal. I just didn't want to do that because I, I, I wanted to get something done within a reasonable time frame. So it's like, okay, I'm going to rely on the programming language that I know. And like, despite the... I guess you could say the stereotypical way in which like visual novels are often treated, like RenPy is actually a pretty robust engine. Like there are these not like top tier trip. There are a lot of engines that are not really used by AAA or AA studios that are nevertheless really robust. And I'm talking about things like, you know, Game Maker, uh, RPG Maker, RenPy, like even Godot now is really, really robust. Like if you wanted to make a really, it's not so great for 3D games, but it is really good for making 2D games. And so the thing is like, though all of these, well, one, a lot of them are completely open source. RenPy is completely open source. Godot is completely open source. Um, RPG Maker is not, but it's a, it's a, it's a simple license. You just pay for the software and that's it. It's not like Unreal and Unity where their licensing arrangement, I mean, Unreal's licensing arrangement is pretty straightforward. Unity recently decided to make their licensing arrangement very not straightforward, yeah. which caused a lot of anger. <laughs> yeah. So actually, could you talk about some of the that licensing arrangements for the other engines? Because with RenPy yeah. and um, well, back in the, when I was looking at RenPy, I wasn't even looking at licensing. I thought that it was just completely open and that they would let you kind of make it and publish it however you want. Is that still true? Or what are some a, of the other it's, licensing it's arrangements? It's slightly more complicated than that because of the way in which like um, open source software licensing works. So RenPy operates under the, the generic MIT uh, license for um, open source software, but then also because it uses a lot of other um, underlying like open source systems it depends on and libraries it depends on them um it then also sort of like forces you to accept their licensing arrangements as well which do vary but they are all still broadly like open access so if you download rempy for free by the way and you build a game in rempy you don't owe anybody anything however you do actually have like in when when it comes to open source, there are a lot of different kinds of open licenses, and you know you, you can go to Creative Commons, the Creative Commons website, and they have a pretty long list of all the like the different types of like open source licensing that exists. Um, and some of them are like straightforward, like you know this thing is completely in the public domain, so it's like you can do whatever the hell you want with it. But a lot of them actually have slightly more restrictive licensing. So for example, it's like it's free to use, but it requires attribution to the original creator. Like a lot of assets work this way, like so-called free assets have an attribution um, requirement. And so one of the things you do need to make sure that you, you check up on when you use any of these open source engines are all of these dependency licenses and what they require as, as well, because there may be some like attribution requirements or you know various other things. So it's not a money issue that you need to focus on, but there is a kind of like 
don't be there's there's ethical concerns like don't right be. yeah <laughs> and it's interesting because it's also like the creative commons license right that whenever you publish anything on the internet like you actually have this kind of digital media license the creative commons license to make sure that like if you want things to be used by other people or you're kind of putting out your art into a creative commons license field you can be like hey this is protected under the you may you use you may or may not reuse yeah. and that's yeah. something that while we're not going to get into it i just want to point out it's kind of being completely obliterated um, these past over 20 years of the digital, well, not 20 years for digital media, that, that came out in 2012 or 2013, but the Creative Commons license that's been around for quite a while now has been since obliterated. The 90s, since the 90s. Yeah, since yeah. the 90s, yeah. Um, has been obliterated by AI art or even some of these language learning models for AI generative kind of storytelling. So we're not going to get into that, but what Nicholas yeah. is pointing out here is that for him, and I, I don't know if I did any sort of things of my trauma in my past <laughs> here. For him, he was not only looking at what the medium or what the tool he was going to use, what game engine, but also as a part of making that decision process was also about, well, how am I going to be able to license and sell this down the road? So I know which engine you chose, but yeah. what were the final two that helped you make your decision? So when, when it came from the perspective of, okay, I'm going to have to, there are things that I'm going to have to hard code myself. That was really sort of the, in fact, um, if you guys want to see more about my, my thought process, I actually, there will be a Substack post going out the same week as this episode. So if you go over to gamedesigndiscourse.substack.com, um, I talk more extensively about sort of like the finer details of like what pushed me in one direction versus another. But really the fundamental one was the fact that like I wanted to build a system and I felt like so it's not so so that's one I want to build a system two I want to do it within a reasonable time frame in this case a couple months and then three I want to be able to use that system not just as like a spec thing like you know I had originally planned to do an unreal but as like a complete even though it's just a demo at this point and I'm still working on the later chapters I want it to be a complete functional game experience and game experience that is very, that, like, I said that very explicitly because the focus for me in building the systems and, like, structure and writing the narrative, it's always about, like, okay, what is this doing subjectively for the player? And so, like, that was my primary focus. Like, I wanted to do that thing. And it was at that point that I realized that if I wanted to do it within a particular time frame, build the system that I wanted to build and create a particular, like, subjective experience for the player... Like if all those things are going to work, RenPy was really my best option. Because, as I said, it's actually pretty robust. And what's interesting, and this is sort of true of all engines, is that engines are not determinative. And it's more like they, they afford certain things that you can do, or they may make certain aspects of design easier and others harder. But because in RenPy, like, if you want to, you can literally just put in whatever Python code you want. You can do that. Like that option is always available to you. While at the same time, if you just want to sort of like use their like basic UI and like their, their basic scripting system, you can do that too without having to like literally learn much Python at all. So like those options are available to you. You can go into it as like a total noob, not really knowing how to code anything and just use their basic markup system. Or you can heart you can be a coding weirdo and, and you can like you know build your own systems and so forth. 
And so from that perspective, I was like, okay, I want to create a thing that is sort of like a complete gaming experience. My best option for now at this point in time would be to do it in RenPy. So before we go into that train of thought, I did just want to call out that when you started this kind of discussion, you were like, I don't want to talk about the ideas. I want to kind of get into the brass tacks of where I felt like I needed to go. But something that I think our listeners should be aware of here is that you kind of said I had at the very, very beginning, you said I was going to do this as a portfolio piece. And instead, I decided to do this as a game because I knew that I actually had a story I wanted to tell. And I know you didn't want to talk about ideas, but RenPy being somewhat very, very natural language, very good for um, RPGs. That's kind of what RenPy was around, right? Particularly also visual novels. I feel like that is something that did influence your decision. And so while it's not about creating the idea of your game, which I agree, right? You already had that idea. You already knew what you wanted to do. And so we did start exactly where we needed to start game engine licensing and experience. But now that you're kind of talking about that game experience, I'm curious, did the kind of like story you wanted to tell with that complete game system, right? A story and a system working together hand in hand, did that actually influence your decision at all? Or do you feel like the engine itself just kind of happened to lend itself to that, but you would have, you treated like Godot, right? Just as equally as it. I mean, the thing is, so there was a sort of intermediate stage where I was thinking like, okay, well, if I want to be more attractive, because I think the really the, the issue is not necessarily like the themes and the story of the game. It's more like, what did I want this thing that I was going to create? Like, how is it going to be situated in my life, <laughs> if you will. And so like originally the the assumption was that like I wanted to create something in Unreal precisely because then like if I can demonstrate my skills in this engine that is commonly used in you know double A AA and triple A studios, yeah. it will make me more attractive as a prospective employee. That original motivation then shifted into like, no, th- I want this game to be a creative expression of me rather than it being sort of this like functional thing. I want it to be this thing that sort of like represents my like total aesthetic sensibilities and is also like interesting to play. Cause you know, the thing is like when you make, <laughs> when you make things for a portfolio, sometimes it can be like, okay, it, it will be really interesting to a prospective employer, but it doesn't really get much beyond that. Whereas like, as I wanted, as it sort of became more about like, I wanted to express myself. I mean, this is going to sound kind of like, you know, fruity, but I wanted it to be a creative expression as much as it was a portfolio piece. And once that kind of shift had occurred, then I realized like, okay, well then I needed to draw on the other like aspects of my creative personality that would then sort of feed into it. Um, and this is actually something that I point out in the in the Substack piece is that like one of the things that's really interesting about engines is how they function as this kind of like nexus for a bunch of other stuff that feeds into right. it. And so 
you can also like look at it from the theoretical level, you know, not from the theory, the creative perspective as well. It's like, okay, well, I have, you know, like certain graphic design skills. I like, I know how to prototype things pretty well in Figma. In fact, I actually did make a couple of prototypes for myself in Figma. Like I understand, I, it's like, I have this coding experience and I'm also a pretty fucking good writer. So it's like all of those things like feeding into each other, then as as a form of like creative expression then pointed me far more in the like renpy direction precisely because it was an immediate it was a better nexus for all of those things than unreal was because the I, problem because then no, the problem I is like in, in order to make the kind of game that i wanted to make i would then have to spend a lot of time in unreal building it out into the nexus that it needs to be for all these other creative like modes. Whereas RenPy already was that. And that is kind of one of the biggest reasons why people get frustrated when they join a company or they get down and what we call bogged down by pipeline and process. Yeah. Yeah. Is that everybody from different studios, if you haven't worked together and you're all coming at one engine, like unreal, you all have different ways of like creating that nexus of information, right? Exactly. Of handing yeah. things off. And so it's also right. A huge struggle for someone like myself, who's just really been in the bones of unreal. Like it needs to be there for me to understand it. Cause unreal is my nexus Yeah. that as soon as people are like, well, you need to go into Maya and change a couple of options, or you need to go into this other editor and change a couple of options that I've done that, but it's not my nexus because it doesn't feel like my sphere of influence yeah. and even using language like sphere of influence. Now it's going, well, my sphere of influence extends in and out of the engine. And so if I can do whatever I need to in the engine, it could, right, create really terrible things for people that are exporting from the engine yeah. so that they can actually get the correct file in Maya or bring to bring it in. Or it, it could be anything. It could also be a spreadsheet, by the way. You can import and export spreadsheets into Unreal. But like Nicholas said, you have to create the Nexus in UE5. And yeah. in a way, you have to also create your Nexus in Unity. Like yeah, little known yeah. secret is that every com uh, every company says that they're in Unreal Engine, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are in their own proprietary version of Unreal, and or they have like proprietary tools that they've built on top of. Well, Unreal. you build on top of Unreal, but at that point, yeah. it becomes proprietary, basically, right? Yeah, like yeah. it basically is. Like you still I have to pay. You still have to pay Epic, though. <laughs> And you do have to pay Epic. So yeah. it's just a, it's, it's a whole other thing. So it's all loops all the way back into, well, where to start? What is your game <laughs> engine? Let's just make yeah. our own. And yeah. so that's kind of where, you know, everything is a cycle. Um, but for me, like I loved actually, so I, I, I'm sorry for that tangent, but I actually want to loop back on something that you said that I just had to point out that I love is that when you talked about your creative process of finally pointing you to RenPy, you just automatically congratulated and like did not self-deprecate yourself at all and saying I'm a fucking good writer because you are you are a hot damn really good writer and so I'm just super happy that you and of yourself usually you kind of are a little more humble and you downplay your oh, yeah fuck that shit I'm not gonna be like that anymore I've yeah decided, season, it's season four it's season four I'm not gonna be the like oh well actually I'm just okay like no fuck that shit I am four I'm nearly 45 years old I have spent basically my entire adult life like writing not basically anything and everything i do it really quickly it's like one of the things that i that comes to me most easily i learn how i think as i write so like 
fuck it (laughs) i try try not i try to swear less on the podcast but at this point i'm just like you know i I, i'm a a good writer it comes very easily to me now after you know many many years of practice and experience but also because the thing is like i spend a lot of my spare time just writing stories kind of so i actually spend since I, i work as a translator off and on I spend a lot of my time just like writing things in like the genres that I translate precisely because it sort of like keeps up the, it's not really muscle memory. It's like the mental equivalent of muscle memory, but sort of like those basic kind of skills when it comes to like how to craft a sentence or like how to think about, you know, a particular line in poetry or how to think about versification or how to think about dialogue or all of these various like literary forms of literary know-how that you kind of have to have as a translator as well. Cause as a translator, you're always sort of like halfway in between doing like scholarly work slash creative work. And you kind of have to like, there's a very narrow furrow that you have to kind of cleave to in order to make that whole process work. And so as a result, I have all of this like material over the years that I've written really with no intention for publication, but I thought to myself, and Lauren already knows this, but I'll tell you guys as well. The end, the the story, and well, in a future episode, I'll talk more about sort of like where the story comes from and why I decided to go with the particular themes that I did. But the story comes from a set of like sort of spec stories that I have written at various times over the years. Some of the material I lifted directly out and put in the game itself. But what I realized is that the the game offers a really good opportunity for like, and this goes back to sort of like, you know, broad reasons about why I decided to do things in the way that I did. Because when you're putting together a game in Rempi and you're creating a sort of more RPG-like framing for telling a story, even if it is mostly text-based, then you can do a lot of the work of sort of like constraining your your player's imagination it's not just in other words you're not just like putting words on a paper and like leaving it there for then the reader to essentially like do whatever they want with but when you create an entire like subjective experience for a player as reader through gameplay then you can do a lot of the work of sort of like i don't want to say tricking them but kind of like nudging their thought processes in particular directions so that way you can have really interesting reveals and i think it's one of the reasons why for like instance melodrama that wouldn't work as say like a movie or as a novel actually does work as a game precisely because you're not experiencing it from this like abstracted perspective you're you're sort of more inside of it and then having that available to you as a writer is really interesting because then you can sort of explore emotional tensions that are harder to convey strictly speaking just like you know in a published short story or in a published novel or a play or Yeah, and we won't be going too much into the story as well because I really want to pick apart everything you just said right there in like incredible detail. Yeah, I know that if I start, no, if I start doing that, like we'll just kind of go (laughs) straight into it, right? Because that actually I feel like is going to come through, right? This podcast in this season, and also like in other 
it'll come out more after I've like played the game more as well. So I can kind of like pinpoint and talk about it. Oh yeah, that. I, should, I should know. Since, I mean, we're really far into it now, but I mean, if you want to play the demo, you can, it's on itch. Uh, I, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm weird. I, it's got a really strange French title. Um, but if you search for Fudidashi, Fudidashi studio on itch.io, it's the only game that will come up. Um, the game is called, uh, it's got two titles, one in Japanese, Shoujo Konkuru, and then another title in French, Le Conqueur des Filles, which are both translations of each other. So don't feel like, you know, you have to know. Um, and all that means is like a, a contest of girls or like a, um, yeah, or like an assembly. It's very like shoujo manga. In my yeah, it, is, it, is, it has a very shoujo manga. Yeah, aesthetic. which I love. I well, no, not a shoujo big. manga aesthetic, a shoujo oh. shosetsu aesthetic. Okay. And we'll get into that when we actually talk oh about God. it. Oh my God, we will. We will. We actually will get into that. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but you can yeah. play the game now if you want. So go go do that. It's fun. Yeah, everyone go play the game. It's free. Um, It will continue to be free until we figure out, I guess, when Nicholas ever feels like selling it or it's not gonna be i'm not gonna put it in a sold form until like the whole thing is complete once it's a complete game then we'll think about how like it's going to be sold and whatnot or for the time being play it for free yeah for the time being play it for free everybody um to help wrap us up here to kind of give us like a starting topic or an ending topic sorry an ending topic topic (laughs) to well no i was i was reading like uh i was reading about giving us an ending topic for starting to make the game right yeah I'm curious if you wanted to kind of, I don't know, go further into that dichotomy of I want to get a job in games, but actually I just kind of want to make a game. Yeah. Well, because the thing is, like, the reason why I wanted to get a job in games is because, well, one, I want to be employed more consistently than I had. Because, you know, one of the things that's really annoying about being an adjunct or like doing the kind of freelance work that I've done over the years is that it's so inconsistent and that creates a lot of anxiety (laughs) to be perfectly frank, to be sort of like that, like to never really know how much or how long you're going to be employed at any given time. It's really terrifying. So I wanted a job that is a little bit more stable, but then was also allowing me to do something that I really wanted to get into doing, which is making games. Um, but then I realized like, well, you know, Nicholas, you could just get a normie job and make games like these two things don't have to be, you know, merged into one. And also then I don't have to sort of like put it off and I can focus on making the kind of game that, cause you know, one of the things that's annoying about doing like freelance, uh, UX work is that you're often put in this position where it's like, oh, okay, make this shopping platform. And like, <laughs> I don't want to, like, I don't want to make the same stupid user flow again for the 500th time because these people don't know how it works. So this, like, allows me to then build something new, something interesting, something different. A lot of the, like, uh, student projects and indie games that I love, I love them precisely because they do something fundamentally different. Um, I'm, a game that I have shouted out many, many times in the past, but I'm going to do it again, which is a game called What's Your Gender, which is a, a deceptively simple game that nevertheless does something really kind of fantastic with the sort of like the w- the position it puts you in as a player. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to make a game that does not necessarily that specific thing, but does something like that. And really kind of the only 
outlet for that, at least in a reasonable amount of time, would be to then sort of like make my own. And so that's sort of where I ended up. And it's interesting because in that process, because I was now making this thing that is sort of like a reflection of me, a lot of other non-technical things started to filter in, like, you know, certain like difficult experiences I was dealing with in my life and sort of like things that have happened to like sort of exercising, you know, the demons of particular things that have happened to me over the past, you know, year and a half. And so it strangely, because it was tapping, because it was that nexus, because it was tapping into all of these like various aspects of my life that at times can feel very disparate and very disconnected. It was much more fulfilling or rather it like, (laughs) well, Lauren knows this because she sort kind of saw it happen. It like finally broke the dam on a lot of things that I was holding back and like allowed me to actually express myself like psychologically and personally in a more, healthy way, I guess is how I would put it. And so even though a lot of like the aspects of putting this demo together were extremely frustrating and at times I felt like I was kind of becoming unmoored again, it was almost like it that had to happen. Like th- there was a, there was an unraveling that kind of had to take place in order for me to get back to a position where I could ha- have a much more like stable and, reasonable perspective on my own life yeah so make games because it'll help you figure out your shit (laughs) yeah make games it'll help you figure out your shit and with that i actually want to talk more about those inspirations because this is a really great place to kind of wrap up okay just the whole thing because it's i feel like that um anytime you start thinking about like why you make games and the thoughts of, oh, well, I want to make games and I also want to have a job. So it feels like they should both be the same thing. Yeah. But kind of learning for you, recognizing that maybe right now, like it doesn't need to be. Yeah, they like, don't have job, to be the same they thing. They don't yeah. have to be the same thing. And I think that's really healthy. And so it was interesting when I'm listening to you again, kind of speak publicly about it, just going, oh, yeah, like now it's even, it's become making you even more healthy, right? So for other games that, have inspired you to make games, right? I yeah. think What's Your Gender is great because that's what you're going for. But what are some other kind of titles that you're kind of thinking of or really percolated well, for you in the past few months? Well, in many project? ways, it's sort of like the, the shadow that hangs over the game and my entire creative process is Baldur's Gate 3. Because as I was playing that game, I mean, because, you know, we talked about this in our, in our previous uh, free episode, which is that, there are a lot of things that are really amazing about that game, but there are also some things that are frustrating about it. And sort of like, it was really interesting how actually for the first time ever I'm playing a game and I'm like, I know how to do this better. And that was a weird experience for me. Not better. Better is not, but like, I know how to do this in a way that I would find more personally satisfying. Because that's not to say like what Larian did is like not a creative achievement or like it's entirely possible that like a lot of the things that I was seeing that I wanted to do in my game 
they could have possibly wanted to do as well and just been like, oh, this game is too fucking huge. We can't add all of that in. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> that one. But also, but also recognizing that um, there are a lot of cool things that you want to do that go through a user test. And then suddenly people are like, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't understand exactly. my actions. And yeah. I hate saying I hate I hate saying this because it's not true, everyone. You are never designing a game in AAA for the lowest common denominator. Like you're not actually designing things for the dumbest player. You yeah. never are, right? I know that as a developer myself and as a highly creative individual, it feels that way sometimes. But really good user experience design is just about understanding who are you actually making the experience for and yeah. will that person get it? Well, and- no, I- so, well, I, and no, so I think in Larian's case, I think that just really quickly, the skill checks for me were like, they needed to highlight that they were making it for a particular person who is a completionist that wants to do everything. Yeah. And so in order to do that, they have to telegraph exactly where every single choice is coming from and make the skill checks very apparent because yeah. once again, it's tabletop role-playing game. And they also needed to accommodate being able to check and recheck and saves coming. So because yeah. of those three things, right, their ideal user experience, while they could have probably done it a lot better because they did do it in some ways better in D- D- uh, Divinity Original Sin 2, um, in right the tabletop 5e experience, they're like, we have to telegraph this because the user is someone who loves Dungeons and Dragons or wants tabletop role-playing, is also probably someone who wants to see every consequence and every choice and every potential, which yeah. means that our skill checks need to be very blunt in your face and specific to a thing that you could choose. Exactly, yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, you know, as we were talking about earlier in the way in which, like, a lot of sort of like if you think of sort of the engine metaphorically as a kind of nexus and then that nexus represents a kind of like more uh, i guess you could say <laughs> conceptual nexus as well in the conceptual ne- nexus for Baldur's Gate 3 one of the things that's feeding into that game is Dungeons and Dragons 5e and they and you know they conscientiously wanted it to look like a 5e simulator that's why you get like explicit dice rolls that's why you get all these things that look exactly like dungeons and dragons fifth edition is because that was an aesthetic choice that was made for the game that's fine like but the thing is like since i don't have that you know particular thing feeding into my conceptual nexus it means that i can sort of re-examine the kind of systems that larian was using and take a fundamentally different approach to it. But I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that like when I was, you know, sitting there trying to figure out the math for how all of this was going to work, that I wasn't explicitly like visualizing a Baldur's Gate like 3 narrative like dialogue encounter because in many ways it's not necessarily like the underlying math that I was taking from that, but What's really brilliant, and, and it's hard to notice this if you're not really someone who like thinks a lot about writing, but what's really brilliant about their skill check system isn't like the code, it's the way in which it's structured. In other words, it's the plotting of the skill checks that is really interesting. Because you don't just like walk into a room like 
make a persuasion check and then everything you want to happen happens. Like you have to navigate to the persuasion check. You have to make the persuasion check and you may even need to navigate to another different skill check. You have to pass that one. And so then the plotting of how all of those elements go together, how they tell a story that is what is brilliant about Baldur's Gate 3. That is the thing that I was like, fuck yeah, that's what I want to do. I want my game to do that. I want it to have that same like flow and structure to these encounters in a way where it feels like you're not just like clicking options, but you're literally sort of like navigating the plot. Like it allows the user to navigate the plot. And that's really cool because then as a result, what it means is that you then have these various like encounters which could go in a combat direction or they could go in a more skill check focused direction. And that's available to you because the sort of the overriding ethos of encounter design is like, how do we allow the player to navigate through this situation? And with that, I am just going to completely cut you off. Didn't mean to do that. I thought you were done. That's fine. Um, but that right there is going to be the perfect segue into potentially the next time's episode uh, yeah. here on season four of making a game is hard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> game, game is hard. <laughs> game is hard. No, with that, I think that it just really kind of segues into all of the work that Nicholas has done. I cannot understate how beautifully, like, interesting and twisted some of that structure i can already see is from the first act i believe that you've done and i also yeah. have gotten to see his behind the scenes uh beautiful writing script uh, oh yeah i wrote it entirely in um a google well an excel spreadsheet essentially i mean all games are written in google excel spreadsheets so yeah. <laughs> you are right there with the rest of us um and what i will say is it's been really uh interesting to kind of like hear you kind of talk about it within this kind of context and framework and to all of our listeners out there you can absolutely go and play the uh, itch.io version of Acts One of the Scheme. Just type in Fudadashi Studio, and it will just insert there right in right there. Yep. Um, you can follow Nicholas and I on still Twitter in our hearts, and we will figure out if we're going to... Yeah, for the time being, at least. For the time being, at least. But where you can really follow us on all of our designs is actually going to be over on our Substack, which is just yep. gamedesigndiscourse.substack.com. Um, that is where you'll kind of find the hub and Nexus. I don't know if there's a Q&A section on that but there is a QA section over on our Patreon which is still patreon.com slash Yep. so with that thank you guys for another awesome rousing episode and we will see you next time on Making a Game